Bienvenidos a Anatomía Verde, con Daniela Barragán y María Fernanda Urneo. Un espacio para hablar de ambiente y conservación, donde la ciencia se difunde de forma sencilla y las soluciones se convierten en acciones. Hello, ah, hi, hola, gente. <risa> hola, estamos en eh, vivo y esta va a ser una, eh, es un una nuevo, nuevo mes, nueva entrevista, nuevo tema en Anatomía Verde y eh, esta vez eh, vamos a tener una entrevista bilingüe. Así que la vamos a manejar en inglés porque si bien Jennifer vive en Chile, eh, todavía no manejamos bien el español, le vamos a poner de tarea, así que vamos a manejar toda la entrevista en inglés, pero eh, van a poder, eh, se va a ir traduciendo abajo al español, así que eh, espero que no haya ningún problema. Así que nada, voy sí, a dar la bienvenida en español, ajá. Bienvenida Dani, welcome Jennifer, so nice to, to, to be here with you again. Yeah. <laughs> Hola Fer, ¿cómo estás? Perdón. Saludando, hola Fer, hola a la gente que nos está escuchando y súper contenta de estar como siempre. La semana pasada me perdí la entrevista, pero ya estoy aquí. Hello Jennifer, um, so exciting today to be with you. So, welcome. Welcome Jennifer. So we are switching to English so that you, I think you can understand Spanish, right? Okay, let's do this. So, uh, we're switching to English and um, we're so happy to have you here, Jennifer. Jennifer is the lead, uh, global lead for uh, WWF Cities, which is, um, I'm only going to use the ac acronyms of WWF, but it's, it's one of the many areas that WWF works. Uh, I worked with Jennifer when I was in WWF, so I'm happy to see you again. Uh, she is in Chile now, um, but she works for uh, Sweden and for for the initiative of cities and Chile. So, mm -hmm. so welcome. I'm so happy to see you, Jennifer. It's been years. Likewise. Yes. It's glad to see what you're up to now. This is very exciting. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Okay. I'm glad to be able to interview you today. <laughs> I think it's a difficult topic for citizens to understand. But here in Green Anatomy, we like to inform people about environmental problems. So welcome. And we want to start with our first question, Fer. Yes. So let's go from the big, big thing. Okay. So people want to understand what's climate change. Uh, and I know it's not easy. So let's do it. I know you're good at this. So let's do it really briefly so that people can understand where do we start and where does this interview go to? <laughs> so what is yes. climate change? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I really want to learn about this. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, you ask a big question uh, with a, in wanting a simple answer. And that's, that's a real challenge. Uh, but I did a little research on this because I think, you know, trying to make something as complex as climate change meaningful for individuals and understandable it's, it's always good to kind of connect the dots uh, so climate change uh, is more or less um, a change in average temperatures and rainfall in a region over a period of time 
but of course, that's the what it is. But where does it come from? And I think, you know, it, basically the, the easiest way to say would be that since the Industrial Revolution, we have started to produce much more emissions than our planet could take in. So whether it's from industrial processes or the way we design our cities, uh, the food we eat, uh, cows, for example, produce a lot of methane, which is a very intensive greenhouse gas. When we cut down our forests, uh, and the burning of forests, uh, these are all some of the contributions. And there are so many things. What is climate change? It's a little bit of everything. It's everything that we do that has some sort of impact on our planet and the collective contributions, which are now seeing a shift in our planet's temperatures, uh, in our um, rainfall patterns, in extreme weather, uh, and so many things. But I think probably what is more interesting is, is what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's that's maybe the next question because one of the things uh, do you do hear me, right? Yes, I hear you. Okay, yeah. great. It's a little so, robotic, but I hear you. Okay, great. So okay. one of the things that I think it's it's interesting to understand is that climate change. Yes, it has been in the world uh, in in our history for many many years. We do. It's a normal process. The not normal thing is the. Uh, I just got, I don't have this, the word in English, but the 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 velocidad which is taken is too fast. The movement fast, is going the velocity. too fast. Yeah, yes. it's going too fast, and so we cannot adapt, right, Jennifer? That's the basic thing. So climate change is something pretty normal in the history of the universe, in the planet, but not uh, not what is happening right now, which is uh, at a fast pace, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's this uh, famous diagram called the hockey stick diagram. And we see a shift kind of every few hundred years in where the temperature is going. And, you know, there are periods of colder winters, there are periods of warmer summers. That is normal. But what we've seen in, I think, the last hundred some years is an acceleration uh, of the temperature changes. Uh, but also in the carbon in our atmosphere. And this is showing us that there is uh, a man-made contribution to this impact. It is not just about the natural cycles. Uh, it's an acceleration yeah. of, of what we are seeing now. Okay. The impact is the impact is heavy. The, the storms, hurricanes, extreme weather events. So that's the result. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that question. Are you asking, you know, uh, yeah. how do we go so, from the global? No, the right global? now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Danny was just saying that uh, those are the results. So we are uh, experiencing uh, heavier rainfalls, as you said, and hurricanes. And we have right now, I understand there's like a fifth uh, thunderstorm or hurricane in the area, which were which was not normal in the States. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's something that they are not prepared for so that's the global thing right and and so we can we can then go to the next question which was exactly how do we so this is very intangible because yeah so people say yeah that's that's happening in the states yeah so maybe it's warming up the oceans um maybe all of those things are happening but what am i where am i what's happening so how do we turn it into something that 
comes to a tangible thing, to a local thing. Uh, how do we explain and how do we act from, mm -hmm. from where we are? Because people do not understand how to connect that very scientific thing to the daily life. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think this for me is what is most interesting and most exciting uh, because climate change in and of itself is so complex. It's about countries coming together, negotiating. It's about companies setting targets. It's about, you know, long scales of time where we think, you know, what are, gonna, what are the changes going to be in 100 years, in 50 years, in 10 years? But, but yeah. the other key question is what is happening now and especially now in the places where we live? Uh, so when it comes to cities, uh, since today, 55% of our global population live in cities. And in Latin America, this rate is, is the highest uh, globally. I think it's between 70 or 80%, but it's much higher than the global average. So, you know, we have become in many senses an urban species. This does not mean that we're not connected to the environment. This does not mean that everything from the air we breathe to the water we drink to the food we eat, all of that is dependent on the natural environment. But of course, we are living in cities, uh, mm -hmm. increasingly so. So what are the choices that we make and how can our individual choices connect to this? How do we move around in our city? Do we take yeah. the bus? Do we take the bike? Is it safe to do so? Uh, do we move around in a car? What are the impacts of that? What, what food do we eat? I know you guys are working a lot with food choices as well. And our food choices are extremely important in terms of our climate impact. Uh, with meat in particular, beef having a very heavy carbon impact. Uh, many, many scientists seeing that a um, flexitarian or low meat diet is, is probably the, the smartest way to go. Of course, if you're ready and willing, going all the way to a vegetarian or vegan diet is definitely good for the environment. Uh, but it's also about the energy that we consume in our homes, uh, in, our, in our offices. Is it greener? Is it efficient? You know, some of these are the, those are how we can contribute, but also how are our cities already impacted? Mm -hmm. Cities uh, already today are warming at faster rates, uh, up to two or three times faster than the rural areas around them. This is something called urban heat island, and it's wow. happening because we have more pavement in our cities, more buildings. Oh. So collectively, this creates a higher temperature uh, also, you know, air pollution is a huge challenge, also connected to climate change because it's some of the same emissions that contribute to air pollution and to climate change. In cities globally, 90% of cities are already impacted by air pollution. So this is a huge challenge that is affecting us today, now, in our homes, for our children, uh, in our communities. What can be the quick solution that you think that uh, we can do at home, for example? Sure. I mean, I think the, the quickest solution is really to think about what we eat, because we do that between two and three times a day. Uh, and it's not just about, you know, become a vegetarian tomorrow, but reduce a little bit the meat from your diet. Find new alternatives. There's so many options, especially in the city, that where you don't have to give up. It's not mm -hmm. about giving things up. It's about 
improving your overall healthy lifestyles. It's about trying new choices. Also, food waste is a huge contributor to, to uh, carbon emissions. So if you eat uh, whatever you choose, whether it's uh, a meat-based diet or a vegetarian-based diet, but reducing uh, your food waste and your, your food loss, because I believe globally it's about one, one third of food is wasted. So this is a huge thing. Now, not all of this is up to the individual. A lot of this is about the food, uh, the global foods, food is lost along the way. But then again, here's a, especially maybe in a, a context like keto, uh, a justification for eating local and supporting yeah. local farmers. In the I, was, I had a question local. on that. Yeah, I have a question about that because that's something that always comes to, to my mind. And I think we, we talked about this many times when we, we worked together, was that what, what was the role of the city? Because the city as a whole has obviously the mayor and all of the, the public policy that is around. And I just had this week, um, I had a, a Twitter a fight, we would say, it wasn't a fight, we were talking about it, we were uh, arguing this, but some people say it's about taking good choices as a consumer. And I was saying, yes, but we need also public policy to back that up. So what is the real role of a city or the structure of a city uh, for this change? And, and where where are the, the, like the red dots, the alarming dots of a city in which we should concentrate and we should push for public policy? Mm, mm. Yeah. Very good question. Well, I mean, I, climate change, the urgency to address climate change is kind of a, everyone has to be involved at some level. The, uh, you know, we are hopeful uh, in the climate policy world that we can half emissions, half global emissions next 10 years. This is what we need to do. And then we need to half those emissions again. Uh, and by 2050, we want to get to what we're calling net zero emissions. So this is, you know, this is about countries. This is about companies, about cities. This is about individuals. So everyone has to have part to play. But but what role is cities? Well, you know, again, you know, I want to reemphasize that 55% of global population lives in cities. So their closest level of government is the city government. In theory. Uh, your your mayor you has to be responsible to you. You are the one that votes your mayor in or votes your mayor out. So you know this is something that mayors are a little bit more connected to this issue. Also, when we talk about extreme weather events or even the COVID crisis, cities are the most places. So you know the 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 local level is has an extremely important role to play because it is both government. But it is also many negotiation spaces. It is not considered national government. So it can play a little bit of a different kind of more provocative, provocative role in terms of, you know, we need to be able to act here. We need the autonomy to act because in many countries, uh, even in Sweden, uh, where I'm coming from, the city needs to ask the national government for permission on certain issues to act. So cities need to be given the mandate in order to really act, to provide the right kind of transportation or energy systems, to support the rollout of better green spaces and more resilient communities. Uh, but they also need the money 
you know, money, like the taxes that we collect, sometimes those don't go to the city and they need to go to the city in order to really roll out and test some of these, these uh, new ways of working. But it's also about partnership and partnership is crucial, whether it's working with, for example, universities to try new innovative ideas or, or partnering with a company to say, I want to work with you to employ many more or more solar panels. So there's, you know, all of these different places of connection. And something else to say is that, you know, remember, humanity has always been an urban species. Since we started gathering, after we were running around and, you know, hunting and gathering, once we started creating communities, we started creating cities. They were, you know, very simple initially with, uh, a, a small market center, maybe a religious center and homes and housing, but we did not create the nation state for, I think, until probably two to 300 years ago, if you look at depending on um, which theory, but we have always been an urban species. Uh, and this has been an important both for learning, for trade, for connection. Uh, yeah, I has been a, a lot of the reason that bring people to to the city and certainly nowadays for jobs and opportunities should we reduce greenhouse gas emission to zero is it possible you think i think i think the question was is it possible to really reduce the uh, the greenhouse gas emissions by such a uh, extreme measure is that uh, yeah to zero basically <laughs> Can we do that? Uh, is it possible? Yes, uh, it's certainly possible if we put a willingness in order to do so. Right now, it's the time to create a story and a vision of where we want to go and how we can get there together. Uh, at WWF, our motto is together possible. Juntos es posible. And we really believe that it is possible if we, we find everyone's individual and collective contribution. So one of the, the, the key ideas that is happening both in terms of businesses, but especially in cities, is this idea of circularity. You know, in nature, there, are, there is no waste uh, and there, you know, waste is always a resource. And why can't we design our cities like this? I mean, recycling is a perfect example of that or composting. If you take your food waste and you use it to make new soil for your garden or for your park, this is your local soils. If we talk about, you know, secondhand clothing or secondhand furniture, this is also part of the circular economy. Or if we talk about uh, borrowing of uh, a, a city bicycle or a car, I don't have a car here in Santiago, but we have a, a local car share system that we have access to. So all of these ideas show that, you know, you can really reduce quite significantly your impact, but it's crucially about infrastructure and what is actually out there. We don't want to put too much pressure on the individual to feel like everything has to be up to you, that you have to recycle, that you have to turn your lights off, that you have to become a vegetarian tomorrow. It's also about having the right kind of systems so that you have access to better food choices, that you have access to better energy, that you have access to live in safe uh, communities where you feel safe in order to get on your bike or get on the bus. Um, you know, all of these things, it's, it's a connection between the individual, uh, but it's also the role of the government and also the role of the private sector. And what can we do as individuals? 
we can gather together and we can demand that we want to live in these kinds of places that have cleaner air, that have cleaner water, that have more accessibility, that are safer communities with you know, jobs, local jobs for a more resilient economy. All of these things are connected. Um, Jennifer, I, had, I, have, a, I have a question um, and I remember in, in Habitat that we talked about this, which is sometimes in Latin America, the issue that we have is that many people say we have so many issues in the social area that climate change is not something that we can work on. So that was one of my frustrations when I talked to many mayors in, in, in the times I worked with you. Uh, their response was that, right? So we don't have the resources. We don't have the people to work on this. They remember that they even closed their departments of environment, their environmental departments in many in many of the of the municipalities that we work with. So how do we tackle this? Because I do understand that climate change is a social issue. It's not only an environmental issue. But how do we how do we work with that? Uh, I would say like that that uh, that argument <laughs> because that's complicated. And that is one of the things, for example, in Quito, right now they are building a system for bicycle, a really long, a very well done uh, a bicycle system. But people's, people push for the car. They're like, I, I want to be in my car. I want to use my car. And at the same time, the municipality feels like they are, I mean, we're investing in this, but people are not reacting. So all of these things come to a problem when it comes, when, when they need to act as a, as a municipality. People don't want to do it. I don't have the resources. How do we act with that? Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think so many times it's, it's, it's framed as either focus on social issues or focus on environmental issues. Uh, but there is a very clear connection, especially mm -hmm. when we talk about environmental justice. Uh, you know, for example, the right to clean air, the right to clean water, the right to good shelter. These are as much environmental issues as they are social issues. Uh, I mean, a city like Santiago, for example, has in many senses beautiful green spaces, but those are not always equally accessible. And what is what is green space? I mean, it's very important for urban, for mental health, uh, but it's also important for your physical health. And certainly uh, in order to temper both the, this, this crisis of urban heat island, you know, the really exhalation of the, the temperatures in cities, mm -hmm. uh, but also when it talks about uh, air pollution. So, you know, this is part of it. Uh, we can talk about the role of nature and the ecosystem services in order to provide cleaner water. This is also something, I mean, cleaner water, air pollution has actually, according to initial studies by the WHO, the World Health Organization, as well as the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, air pollution actually can impact uh, children's ability to learn. Uh, so this is, you know, this is extremely a social issue as well as a health issue as much as an environment issue. So we have to stop seeing it as either or. There's also a great report that just came out when we talk about COVID recovery plans. And I mm -hmm. believe it's in Spanish as well, but I can definitely send you the yes. English copy. So we can put it here, yeah. Absolutely. But it's uh, looking at uh, a recovery plan, a green recovery plan in cities mm -hmm. and, and looking at how investments in brown infrastructure, so kind of conventional infrastructure versus green infrastructure, how many more jobs, local jobs that we can create 
if we start investing in the kinds of infrastructure that are good for the environment, but also very good for, for social resilience, for jobs, for a more stable local economy. Uh, mm -hmm. Paris recently came up with this idea of what they call a 15-minute city. And the 15-minute city is the idea that within 15 minutes, everything that you need in kind of your daily life, so your, your shopping, your restaurants, your cultural activities, your schools, your hospitals, are within 15 minutes of walking or cycling. Uh, so if we have access to a 15-minute city, then we don't need, I mean, maybe we have a car for the weekend. Maybe we have a car for special opportunities. Certainly, you know, myself, I'm not saying I'm not anti-car. I'm pro-citizen. And I think we have to start creating cities for people, not cities for cars, so that people can move around in their cities and really get to know their cities. A city like Amsterdam has a, such a resilient economy because it's always accessible. So if we start talking about accessibility and connection, this is extremely, uh, this is very much a social issue. If you don't have access, think in Quito, if, if someone is living on the outskirts of the city but lives in, has to work in the center of the city, how many different times do they have to shift you know, between several different bus lines or sit in several different, maybe in their own car, but in so many hours of traffic? These are, this is time they could be spending with their family. This is time that they could be spending you know, sleeping, reading, relaxing, earning more money. You know, all of this, this, these all become social issues at the end of it. So we have to stop framing them as either or. It's definitely both. Uh, and, you know, obviously, like COVID has put this so much more central. So, so many governments around the world are saying, you know, we can't do, we can't address both COVID uh, and the climate. We have to address COVID first. Yes, we understand. And there is a huge urgency. But when we start to talk about recovery, how can we think about a recovery that benefits people as well as the planet? And what I've seen here in Santiago, you know, the emergence of the temporary bike lanes, and we still also have the, you know, a lot of people who love their cars. Um, but, you know, there's also a strong interest to get on the bike and to actually move. You know, we've been stuck in quarantining in our houses for so long. The ability to move outside, how that benefits your mental health as well as your physical health. We've also seen streets close to allow restaurants that have been so hardly hit to economically recover. So they close streets and they allow the tables, you know, following all the protocols, uh, one to two meters between tables, but allowing these local businesses to recover that have been so hardly hit. So now when we start to see that we can create a city for people and that is good for the economy and that is good for the economic development, but that we're also seeing drop, drops in, in air pollution, um, uh, reductions in traffic congestion. This is also good for the environment. Uh, for example, here in, in, in our country, we don't have good public transport. People don't want to ride a bike, uh, don't want to walk. Uh, so it's difficult here, I think, for some yeah. people, not, not to all. So I'm going to tell you a personal story because I, I think that's kind of fun. So the very first time I came to Santiago, uh, my now mother-in-law said to me, so what do you think that my son does not own a, own a car? As though this was going to be an issue for me. And I said, well, you know, I haven't owned a car for so many years. I mean, I only go around my city in Stockholm on a bicycle and I lived in Amsterdam for many years before. And 
Uh, I, I love cycling. I think it's a great way to see your city, to interact with your city, to connect, uh, save money for sure, not have to go to the gym. Uh, and yeah, I think it's great that he's showing that his conviction and that you can live in the city without owning a car. So that was her first question. Okay. So, you know, the, because it is very much a status symbol sometimes. I, I've made it in this world. I can own a car. I can move around in my city with a car. And, and again, it's not to say that uh, it's against being having cars, but to be dependent on it. And I think this is where we can really talk about new messaging. Uh, I, I, I spent a lot of my childhood in the United States, which is our focused society. Uh, and people talk about independence, but the reality is they are so dependent on moving around in the car that, you know, what if you can let go of that, the freedom that you can have by being able to move around, by not having to think, where is my car today? Or, oh, you know, if I want to go out to a restaurant and have a glass of wine, or maybe two, I don't have to think about how I'm getting home if I'm walking home, or maybe I'm cycling home a little bit excited, hopefully not too excited, of course. Um, but, you know, this we have to start reconnecting on how we actually move around our cities, where we decide we want to put our resources. Some of this is, you know, also how we plan our cities. So one thing to add here, which I think is so mind blowing for me, is that between 40 and 60% of public spaces in cities, so that's about half or more than half, uh, are dedicated to cars. So people walk around on these narrow sidewalks and you know you barely have room to move and yet we give space to cars in terms of roads, in terms of highways, in terms of parking lots. What if we re recreated our cities with better public spaces for people, especially in the, in the time of COVID? What if we made pop-up parks? So we allowed people to be outside, to exercise, to experience urban nature or you know, to, to exercise, all of these things. Uh, but it's it, we really have to think about how much space and how much planning are we giving to cars? And it's cars, it's not people, it's cars for most of the time that we actually have them. You're right, you're right. And it's, it's su super interesting because one of the things that uh, has been an issue here, and, and I think that's where Daniela was going, because it's been an ongoing uh, issue for the past, I would say, a month or two months, that uh, the back bike lanes in Quito have been uh, very, like the, the municipality is putting a lot of work on doing this whole bike lane around Quito. You would be amazed at how many uh, they have built already. So that's amazing. But you have the anti-bike people. I don't ride a bike. I walk a lot. Uh, and you remember that when I was pregnant, I would walk everywhere with <laughs> my big belly. Those numbers are so important, Jennifer, because 60% for cars and they only represent, I think it's about like 10% or something of the whole trans, like mobility yeah. percentage. So most of the people, for example, in Quito, I know those numbers because I think 70 or 80% use public transportation and they use, uh, they don't, they are not called uh, pedestrians, but they, they do identify as pedestrians, not as public transportation, which is something that is 
pretty weird because municipalities are always talking about this public transportation, but most of these people walk a lot. Mm. So they only use the public transportation for uh, certain uh, certain parts of their journey, which is pretty interesting mm. because mm. they could use a bike too. Uh, but it, but again, is this idea of giving so much space to car and so much space to something that is actually not the the, the big percentage of people? It's not for the the citizens. It's for a small group of citizens. What one thing that you know on this topic that that I find really interesting is um, well, I, I told you I used to live in Amsterdam, um, and Amsterdam is such a fantastic city. Um, I mean, it's the cycling king city together with Copenhagen and Denmark. So these two cities are always trying to say, oh, no, we have more bikers. No, we have more bikers. But it's it's transportation and it's cool. And, you know, the prime minister goes to goes to work on the bicycle. All the businessmen go to work on the bicycle. The grandmothers go around on the bicycle. The, the kids going to parties, you know, you can be in fancy high heels and you're going out to a concert and you go on the bicycle. And then you see so much dynamic urban life uh, when you're out, you know, because you're always interacting with your city. You're always interacting with your citizens. And every time I got on, on my bike when I lived in Amsterdam, I fell in love with the city again what a beautiful place to live you know every bridge has flowers on it because there's more space to do these things at the human scale it's not about just the cars mm. now i know quito is a very hilly city so uh I, and i also know that there are some amazing really cool uh, it's in quito as well and i have so much respect for them and I cycled around your gorgeous city with some of them up and down those hills. And, you know, I didn't think I'd make it, but I did. Um, but it, it's it's a really impressive place. Now, we can't call every city the same. You have to find the right system. Uh, and I think uh, when we talk about transportation, for me, it's not just talking about transportation. It's not just talking about climate. Although transportation is roughly 25% of global emissions. That's not only city transportation, but a lot of that is in cities. So this is a huge area where we can make a big change when we talk about the climate crisis. Uh, but it's also then about how cities are planned. Mm -hmm. If cities are planned around the bicycle or around walking, then they're designed at what we call the human scale. So this also goes back to the equity aspect and mm -hmm. who has access. If we design cities around the car, this means that the distances are much further. This means it's harder for people who might not have access to a car or if there's not very good public transportation connection. Uh, and it's also, you have this problem of urban sprawl. Now, one of the things I absolutely love about Quito is, is uh, going up, and I think I've been to your city now two or three times, and I've done this every time, is take the teleferico up over the city and see all the beautiful mm -hmm. nature that's just there. It's so, so close. And if we really want to keep nature close to cities, we also have to think about the, the design of how we how we plan our cities. And of course, if we put transport planning central and human uh, human centered transport planning central, then this also influences the whole design of a city. 
It's not to say that people shouldn't have access to their own private garden or, you know, their own homes. I know that that's really a desire and, and myself too. I love gardening. So, you know, how do we plan that? But it doesn't always have to be that you do it in a very kind of disconnected fashion. Maybe we have <laughs> these, these uh, community gardens, or maybe we put more emphasis on going to parks, places where we can meet our neighbors. We move to cities for jobs, but we also move to cities to interact with people. So we need to create those spaces right now in a socially distanced fashion, uh, but just mm -hmm. in general where people can really connect and, and enjoy the wonderful hobby of people watching, knowing who else is in your city with you. Right, right. Um, so there you are in the, 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 the final question, which is the role of the citizens. So uh, what is our role and how, how can we become more active on this? Well, I, I mean, what role can citizens play? It, it's kind of everything and anything at the same time. Um, but be before I say that, I, I want to emphasize that, you know, we're not, certainly we are all equal, but we're not all equal in terms of our impact. So I don't want to put too much individuals, even though there is something to say, we also need to collectively, as individuals, call on our governments, keep count, uh, companies accountable and really look at where, you know, there has to be the right institutional mechanisms in order to, to create that change. So if you do everything right in your individual life, you know, if you, you turn your lights off, you, re, you, you have a solar panel, you use very little water, uh, you then your bicycle, this is all absolutely wonderful. And it should definitely uh, keep people empowered to be part of the change process. But a key part of that change process is also making sure that global leaders provide and, and national leaders and local leaders provide the, those spaces so that we can do so. Uh, you know, I'm so inspired and, and certainly as a Swedish person, uh, but also uh, as a global citizen from what Greta Thunberg has been able to do with the school strikes, first in Sweden and then in Europe and then global. You know, really calling on getting young people to say, I'm not going to school until you teach me about what is what is really possible in our future. And so this shows the power of individuals collectively working together and calling on their politicians to create stronger change, to create stronger commitment. So, you know, it's about your individual choices. And that is crucial also for consistency and frankly, for, for healthier lifestyles, because many of these choices are better for you as an individual. But we, we have to also recognize the role of individuals together to create movements of change. Whether again, uh, I mean, Chile has been going through uh, a very critical social, social movement in order to create change in this country. Uh, in the U.S. with the Black Lives Matter movement has put not only in the United States, but also globally to look at racial equality. All of these issues are connected. But what, what we see, whether we talk about Black Lives Matter or the social crisis in Chile or, or, the, uh, youth or, or the youth movements, is that collectively we can really make an impact when we start to get our voices heard. So that's what we go do out on the streets. And that's an important part when we, you know, we bring attention to the issue. Uh, but then it's also important that we vote, that we vote, that we vote, that we participate 
in our, you know, our democratic processes and, and we are keeping our local leaders and our national leaders accountable, they have the right or they have the power to, to really set the, the infrastructure that we have access to. And then it's also about, yeah, what, you know, trying new recipes. What, I mean, sometimes people say, I would be a vegetarian, but it's not really that interesting, the food choices. And I would completely disagree. It's just about having a little bit of creativity and what you want to what you want to eat. There are so many choices, especially now. Or you know, when you don't eat all your food and you have some leftover green waste, start a worm garden. It's super easy. I have one outside on my balcony. I would show you, but I know the connection isn't very good here. Um, but it, it's quite fun to try a lot of these things. And I think, especially with COVID, we've seen is a, a new willingness to, to try new recipes, to recycle things, to, to make sure that the full life uh, cycle is used of a product. So there is a lot of new learning happening. The, the movements in our cities, we're, we're seeing uh, citizens are realizing, wow, this is how clean the air quality could be in my city if there were less cars or if we cleaned up our industrial processes. So, you know, remember that and keep that momentum and work together because it's, you know, individuals, the individual integrity of your decisions are important. Uh, and frankly, you know, once you start to adopt certain behaviors, it's really exciting because you, you, you connect like, wow, yeah. it's, it's really not difficult to shift my diet or shift my energy. But if mm -hmm. we do that together, this is where the power is. Exactly. Exactly. I see. I see hope after this interview. <laughs> work together. <laughs> we need to. We need to work together. And it's it's very inspiring to hear you, Jennifer, because um, one of the things that we we usually say is that we we have to change things from home. And I'm I'm I always say that because people feel they are not empowered enough to do things. So they usually say, I don't know what to do. And I actually, I'm so busy. Uh, many, many, many excuses that we put. But I think that when you feel like many people are doing it and you're part of this movement, it just becomes so easy to do it. And it's, a, it's not to become very radical. And I, I remember uh, I had, um, I had a, a meeting with, um, a vegan movement, a, a guy from a vegan movement. And he said, you know, I'm not making you vegan. I'm just saying, just taste, just be vegan two days a week. And that's fine. But if you, if you're part of this movement, we can share things. We can actually say, you know, I have a really good recipe for this. And, uh, you know, I compost at home. Maybe I can help you out with that. If you don't feel, if you're scared about biking, let's bike together. Let's go together to work. So, That idea, I think it's amazing and it's something that we do feel it's the change that we need to make, which is we already had a bad moment with COVID and I think we do, we did understand that we need to work together and we need to be more a team rather than these individual people just earning money everywhere and doing things by themselves. I think it's a time the change right now, which is COVID is making us change, is that we need to be together and we need to yes. go through this together because we are we are uh, one with each other 
And once we understand that, then we can move uh, an to another type of system, which is the one that I think it's breaking in this 2020. I think 2021 will be a new, new era for many people. Yes. Thank you very, very much, Jennifer, for sharing with us here in Green Anatomy. I see hope a lot. <laughs> and yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was My such pleasure. Yeah, it was amazing to have you here. I am happy to see you again. I only see you in pictures now, but I'm happy to see yeah. you again. Thank you for taking the time and for making it so easy. I remember you would uh make me understand things so easily so i'm happy that people that can hear you here uh will be amazed at how how good you make us understand how it works so thank you so 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 much and i'm going to show you just before we go i'm going to show you my worm bin because like you said it's just about sometimes knowing that this is possible so here <laughs> you can see my, uh, we're in the way, this is my worm bin. And here you can see our worms. Just oh, working. Working. <laughs> it's amazing. Very I nice. have a compost in my house and I, li I live in an apartment and I know it's easy to do it. Uh, yes. So let's do it. Let's just do it. Get <laughs> Thank you. Thank yes. you, Fair. Uh, and remember that you can hear here, then you can hear in Spotify, iTunes, and in our Instagram. Thank you, Jennifer. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Gracias por ser parte de un episodio más de Anatomía Verde. Si te gustó esta entrevista, no te olvides dejarnos tus comentarios. Y recuerda seguirnos en Facebook y también en YouTube como Anatomía Verde.